Who do you belong to? Who do you serve? Jesus was once talking to a group of people, and he said, if you remain in my words, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And immediately they objected and said, we're not slaves. We don't belong to anybody. We don't serve anybody. We have never been enslaved by anyone. And then Jesus said, the one who practices sin is a slave to sin. We all serve someone. We all belong to someone. We cannot help as, as creatures, as those who have been made to serve someone or, or something. The question is, who do we belong to? Who do we serve? I think a lot of people would uh, resonate, would um, reiterate what that crowd said or what that group of people said. They said, we've never, we don't belong to anybody. Nobody tells me what to do. I am not... Uh, no, one, no one binds me, no one has bound me, no one holds me, no one tells me what to do. And the reality is, is that if we practice sin, then we are in the chains of sin. We are in bondage to sin. We serve our sinful passions and our sinful desires, and we are not free to do what is right. We're not free to practice righteousness. We're not free to live for God. We're not free to inherit eternal life. Today, what I hope you'll see is that we all serve someone, we are bound to someone, and that you'll find freedom through Jesus Christ, through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Today, we're going to be in Exodus 12, Exodus chapter 12, starting at verse 29, Exodus chapter 12, starting with verse 29, and we'll start by talking about freedom, freedom. Exodus 12, starting with verse 29, freedom. Exodus 12, starting with verse 29. Let's read through verse 42. This is what it says. At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on his throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. And Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all his servants and all the Egyptians. And there was a great cry in, in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from among my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, and bless me also. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they had asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Succoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened cakes of the dough uh, that they had brought out of Egypt, for it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait, nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. So, that, so this same night uh, went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. 
We're picking up in, in verse 29, and we're kind of picking up in the middle of the story a little bit. Uh, Moses, uh, God had said to Moses, the Lord had said to Moses, I'm going to bring one last plague, and after this last plague, he's going to let you go. Pharaoh was going to let the people of Israel leave. Uh, and then God had told Moses about uh, how they should practice the Passover. That is, they were going to uh, have a lamb slaughtered for each household, and the blood was going to go over the door, and that was going to cause uh, God to pass over their houses. When he came in judgment on the people of Egypt, he was going to pass over their houses. Also, how they were going to observe a feast each year uh, that was going to memorialize this, that, that God was going to, that God had saved them, and we're going to remember it over and over again. Well, starting in verse 29, we actually come to the actual enactment of this plague or this judgment on Egypt. In the middle of the night, the Lord strikes down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. The firstborn from Pharaoh, the highest, all the way down to the firstborn of the captive who is in the dungeon, even all the livestock, each and every, every firstborn in the land of Egypt. And, and in the night, they are crying out. Like when they discover that their firstborn children are dead, they are crying out. The same way that Israel had cried out earlier in the book of Exodus, the same word is used. They had cried out because of their bitter and harsh slavery, their bitter and harsh bondage. So God has enacted judgment on the Egyptians because, because of their uh, evil, because of their sin. And Pharaoh calls Moses in, summons him and says, I- I'm ready for you to leave. Get up, get out from among the people. You and all the people of Israel, go, go serve the Lord. They had been serving Pharaoh for 430 years. They had been serving as slaves in Egypt. Now they were being set free from slavery in Egypt to go serve the Lord. Go serve the Lord. Take all your livestock. That was kind of the last bargaining uh, point uh, that Pharaoh had worked on. But, but this is making it clear that everything, lock, stock, and barrel, everything that the, the Israelites have is going. Please get out. He even says at the end, bless me also. It's kind of hard to understand what he's talking about there. But back in Genesis 47, uh, Jacob, who was the patriarch of the nation of Israel, uh, he had blessed Pharaoh in the time of Joseph. It was, blessing was something that happened from those who were higher, of higher status or of high status, to those who were of lower status. What, what Pharaoh was essentially saying is, please, please get this curse off of me. And instead, will you bless me? It was, a, it was an act of humility of saying, I, I have been brought all the way down. I have been humbled. Please bless me. Remove the curse from me. Remember what God had said to Abraham, the one that you bless, I will bless, and the one, that you, uh, the one who dishonors you, I will curse. It's being played out in the nation of Israel. They had been dishonored by Pharaoh, and now Israel had cursed Pharaoh. Now Pharaoh is crying out, at least for the time being, for, for this, at this point in time, Please bless me. Please, please remove this cursing from me. You know, it didn't have to be this way for Pharaoh. God had been very merciful to Pharaoh. God had been very patient with Pharaoh. God had, God had spoken his word through his prophet to Pharaoh. I want you to recognize this. If God can humble Pharaoh, he can humble you too. If he can, if he can take somebody that that high and that great and that powerful and he can bring them all the way down to where he is, he is essentially groveling on the ground saying, bless me, take this away from me. 
God can do the same to you. And so the, the call for us, the response that is called for from us is that we would humble ourselves before the Lord. Trust, trust in Jesus Christ now. Humble yourself before the Lord now. God tells us to, to humble ourselves. Jesus teaches us to humble ourselves as little children, to depend upon God, to depend upon Jesus Christ. Let us be humbled and glorify God. Now then, the, the people in Egypt are doing the same thing. They are saying, hey, we, we are ready to, for you to leave. Uh, you kind of even think that this is, this is a form of mercy from God for the people of Israel, that they are, they are not just, they're not just throwing open the door and saying, you can leave now. They are like ushering them, pressing them, like expelling them from the land. They lived here for, for 430 years. They might not be ready, but whether they're ready or not, strap on your kneading bowls. You're not waiting for the dough to rise. You, you get out, okay? Get out of our land. If you don't leave, we are all going to die. Now, the, the Israelites had done what God had told them to do. They had asked all the Egyptians for, uh, for uh, silver and gold and clothing. Uh, this was uh, be forms of wealth. Israel's not going out empty-handed. By the Lord's doing, by his judgments on Egypt, and even by him working on the hearts of the Egyptians. They are willing to give up all these things. And it says that, that this is the way that Israel plundered Egypt. In a lot of ways, in the next uh, couple of chapters, Israel is pictured as this great army. But they're an army that doesn't have any swords. <laughs> they, they don't have any chariots. They don't have any horses. They don't have, they don't have any of the things that would, that would indicate military might. They don't have any of that. What they have is the Lord. Now, having great power or strength or great might, they have the Lord. The Lord enabled them to defeat Pharaoh and his army. The Lord enabled them to plunder the Egyptians. The Lord did it. Indicates the, the greatness of God and the power of God. Now then, they are leaving. You can see the, the way that God has multiplied the Israelites. They went down to Egypt 75, 70, 75 people, they come out this huge multitude of men and women. Even the language there is they are going out as armies, the hosts. One of the things I want you to pay attention to is verse 38. It says, a, a mixed multitude also went up with them. So you have all these men and women and all the livestock, but with them it's, it says a mixed multitude. Probably the best way to understand that is that this is a, a, whole, a whole lot of people who are, not of, who are not native Israelites. They are not biologically or physically or ethnically from the line of Abraham. But they're leaving. Like they have, they have seen, remember from uh, chapter 9 and later on in, in a number of other places, chapter 10, chapter 11, God had said, I, I am making my name known. I am conquering the gods of Egypt. I am proclaiming my glory in all the nations. All the nations are going to see my power and my greatness. And they are, going to, they are going to recognize my glory and that I am God. They will know my name. Look what's happening already. The Lord has done all these things and there are a whole lot of people in Egypt. Uh, it might be, might be Egyptians. It's more than likely though those who are, who are ethnically not Egyptian or Israelite, but they have been living in the land of Egypt. They are, they are rising up and saying, hey, I want your God, I want him to be my God. Your Savior, I want to be my Savior. One of the things that we see in the, in the Old Testament is that 
those who are not native Israelites or those who are not ethnically Israelites are able to join in with God's people. Two of the most notable, uh, notable examples of this in the Old Testament are Rahab, who lived in Jericho, who was a prostitute, but she believed in the Lord. She had heard about the Lord's acts of judgment on Egypt. She had heard about the Lord's salvation, and she said, I want, I want that God to be my God. Now, the other example is Ruth, and, and Ruth actually says to her mother-in-law, uh, your God will be my God, and, and your people will be my people, and where you live, I will live. You're, you're going to go live in the land of promise? I'm going to go live in the land of promise. You're going to go live with, with God's people? I'm going to go live with God's people. We're going to go serve the Lord? I'm going to go serve the Lord. There are all kinds of other examples. Sometimes you're reading through the Old Testament, uh, and you're reading about a, a, a Hittite, or a Cushite, or a, or a, uh, a Gittite. You know, those are all those are all people who are not natively or ethnically or biologically descendants of Abraham, but they've come and they have become a part of Israel through faith. They've believed in the Lord, in Yahweh, in the God of the covenant. They believe these promises. Now then, what happened as a, an uneven trickle all through the Old Testament has poured out as a gush with the, come, with the sending of the Spirit at Pentecost. Now, in the world, the gospel has been proclaimed all over the world. And people from all tribes and languages and nations and peoples have bowed their knee to God's King, Jesus Christ. They have, they have trusted in the God of promise. They have said, yes, this is the God that I want to be my God, the God who sent his son to die for my sins, the, the, the God who raised his son from the dead. Jesus Christ was raised from the dead and has taken away my sins. What we see in the Bible and what we've seen God do all throughout history gives us the confidence to know that God is bringing a great multitude of people. It's going to include Jews, it's also going to include Gentiles, and it's going to include uh, barbarians and Scythians. These are ways of talking about uncivilized type people, people. We belong to Jesus Christ because God has opened up the floodgates so that the gospel will be proclaimed in all nations. Do, are, are you among those who see the power of God and say, I want him to be my God? If you're a Gentile, if you're not, not a, an ethnic-born uh, ethnic Jew, if you're not from the line of Abraham, you're still a part of Abraham. You're still the offspring of Abraham if you have faith in Jesus Christ. It's one of the things that we see in the Old Testament is that, that I'm sorry, in the New Testament, is that the end of Romans 2, you can kind of go and look at this, Romans 2, 28 and 29, it's not the person who's circumcised, it's the person who has a new heart. You go and belong to Jesus Christ. Now then, this multitude goes up. You also see that there is this uh, note, note there about the 430 years. God had said to Abraham in Genesis 15, in the fourth generation, which uh, you have to keep in mind how old uh, Abraham was. For him, a generation is about 100 years. So in the fourth generation, or about 400 years later, four lifetimes your people are going to go down to Egypt, and in, in four lifetimes, they're going to be brought out. They're, God is going to conquer the people. And so on that very day, it doesn't mean on the very day 430 years later, but on that very day, on the very day that God passed over the Israelites, they left 
like the, the Egyptians, they are crying in the night, and, and at dawn, they are pushing the Israelites out. And so this is why it becomes a night of watching. That is, God watched over the Israelites. He was on watch, protecting them. And now it is a night of watching, or a vigil. They stay up all night. They stayed up all night, ready to go as soon as, as dawn broke, ready to leave. God is setting them free. God set them free from bondage in Egypt. God set them free for, from, from, the, uh, from their slavery to another master. Now this whole story acts as, as what's called a, a type or, or a pattern uh, of how God works with us. If you want to, you can flip over or you could just listen. You can flip over to Romans 6. Flip over to Romans 6. In the Exodus, God set Israel free from the power of Pharaoh, from slavery to Pharaoh, so that they could serve him. Now then compare that with Romans 6. We're going to look at verse 16. Romans 6, starting with verse 16 says, do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin and having become slaves of righteousness, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms. Because of your natural limitations, for just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. And its end, eternal life. For the wage of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The overall sweep of this passage is that you serve someone. You were serving sin. Slave is, uh, sin is personified as a slave master. And you, if you are sinning, if you are practicing sin, then you are enslaved by sin. If you are serving sin as an obedient slave, then you are, he is your, sin is your slave master. Making you do that. And you're not free to do what's right. You're not free to do righteousness. You're instead in bondage to sin. And he says... I'm speaking in human terms, that is, he's, he's using an analogy, but he's saying, you're either slaves of sin or you're a slave of God. Now, to be a slave of God is nothing like being a slave of sin. It's an analogy. To be a slave of God is to be truly and freely, truly free. It is to truly live. It is to truly live and be free and know life. Now, then, I want you to think about this, too. Your slave, as a slave or your slave master, gives you some pay at the end of the day. At the end of your term. You get paid. You work for a certain number of hours or, and then you get paid at the end. Now, what is the payment that sin gives? Well, the wages of sin is death. Paul even says, like, like what were you getting out of your life before? You were getting death. 
But then he talks about the reward. It's be inappropriate to talk about getting a wage from God since what he gives is a free gift. But he says instead of a wage that you would get from sin, which is death, you get a free gift from God through Jesus Christ. We serve someone or something. We are slaves to someone or something. We, we, may, we may pretend, we may delude ourselves to think that we are autonomous and independent, but we are slaves to someone or something. The only way to know true freedom, the only way to be free to live righteously, the only way to be free to receive eternal life is to be a slave of God, to be obedient to God from the heart, to trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died on the cross to set us free. He died on the cross not to set us free so that we would go and live in sin, but he died on the cross to set us free so that we would live to righteousness and to live to eternal life. You, you are either a slave of sin or a slave of God. Turn from the slavery of sin and know freedom in Jesus Christ. Know eternal life in Jesus Christ. We see the freedom from slavery in Egypt and the freedom that we have in Jesus Christ, the freedom uh, from sin, from the power of sin, from the domain of sin, from the dominion of sin, from the kingdom of darkness. We've looked at freedom. Uh, next, next, we look at belonging. Pick up in verse 43. It says, And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it. But every slave that is bought for money, bought for money, may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. It shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and should keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, remember this day in which you come out from Egypt out of the house of slavery for by strong hand the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today in the month of Abib you are going out. And the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you a land flowing with milk and honey. You shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. And on the seventh day there shall be a feast of the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you. And no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your son on that day, it is because of the Lord, what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. A lot of this is a reiteration from what we saw earlier in chapter 12. Uh, God is restating everything so that they will remember. Remember, this is a, a memorial for, uh, to remember what God had done for them. God is freeing them from the land of slavery. God is keeping them. But one of the things that is, is noteworthy about this section is the focus on the exile or the sojourner 
or the, the non-native, the, the one who is not notably, of, not, not ethnically a part of God's people? Well, what if they want to keep the Passover? What if they want to join in with God's people? What does it look like to belong to God's people? Well, Moses is really clear. Like, like they, they have to be circumcised. That was the mark that set God's people apart. It was something that marked them as, as God's people who belongs. Now, if they're willing to be circumcised, all the males in their household to be circumcised, then they can join in with the Passover. If they will be ready to take on God's covenant on themselves, if they will be ready for God to be their God, then they can join in. Now, in New Testament terms, what does it look like to belong to God's people? Well, again, I already talked a little bit about Romans 2 at the end of Romans 2. He says the circumcision that matters is not outward circumcision, but circumcision of the hearts. What is it that marks a person as belonging to God's people? It's a new heart. It's a changed heart. Do you believe in Jesus Christ? Do you have a new heart that is, that is now filled with, with faith in Jesus Christ, with love toward Jesus Christ, with a readiness to obey Jesus Christ from the heart? Is that there? Have you been born again? Jesus says, to enter the kingdom of heaven, to see the kingdom of heaven, you must be born again. You have to have a new heart. Paul says something similar in Colossians 2. It's about, uh, it's about the, the cutting away of sin from the heart. Or look at Galatians 3. The end of Galatians 3, Paul has this statement. He's been talking about, he's been talking about Abraham and God's covenant with Abraham and how God has been keeping, being faithful to Abraham and, and not annulled or, or failed to keep his promise to Abraham. And then at the end, he says, do you know who is counted as an offspring of Abraham? Who is counted as a son of Abraham? Who is counted as an heir of Abraham? Who receives all the promises that God made to Abraham? It's all those who have faith. It's Jew, it's Gentile, it's male, it's female, it's free, it's slave, it's, it's uh, civilized and uncivilized. It is all those who put their faith in Jesus Christ. What does it look like to belong to God's people? What does it mean to belong to God's people? How do I belong to God's people? God saves us individually, but he, he saves us individually to bring us and bind us together with others in love. He makes us into a family. He makes us into a, a kingdom of priests. He makes us into a, a holy nation, a chosen people. We're brought together and we're bonded together by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we're bonded in a way that transcends our, our nationalities or our backgrounds or our, our, our wealth or socioeconomic status. He bonds us together and he binds us together through the death of Jesus Christ. By giving us new hearts. He makes us one of his people by changing us from the inside out. I hope that you have received a new heart from God. I hope that you are putting your faith in Jesus Christ. Put your faith in him. Say, I want that Passover lamb to be for me. I want Jesus' death to count for me. I want to be a part of God's people. Now then, in chapter 13, he again, he again uh, reiterates this feast that they're going to remember. Now the focus here is, though, not so much on the, on the details uh, that we looked at before, or, or he reiterates those things, but he talks about, I want you to remember when you get into the land. Remember, the promise is not, hey, I'm going to get you out of Egypt into, uh, into the wilderness 
He says, I'm going to get you out of Egypt and bring you into the land that I promised to Abraham. I'm going to bring you into this land where it's flowing with milk and honey. Uh, everything that is, is needed to sustain your life is there. When you get there, generation after generation, though, don't forget who brought you here. It's easy to get into the land and start to be successful and start to be prosperous. And then to forget about God, to forget about the one who brought you there. Uh, There's an old uh, theologian, American theologian, who said, uh, Christian discipline gave birth to prosperity, and then the daughter ate the mother. Prosperity can drive out our knowledge and our understanding and our recognition of the one who gives us everything. If, you, if God sees fit to make you rich, then be rich in good deeds. But don't forget where the money came from. Don't forget the one who satisfies you. Don't forget the one who sustains you. Don't forget. Now then, notice one other thing. Look in chapter 13 and verse 8. You're supposed to talk about this with your sons. Talk about it with your children. Talk about it in your household. And he even says, he says, Look at the quote in verse 8. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. Hey, this, it, might, it might be the next generation. might be the generation after that or generation after generation. It might be a hundred generations. The Israelite was supposed to look back at the, at, at the Passover. He's supposed to look back at the Exodus and say, that's what God did for me. If God didn't do that for me, I'd still be a slave in Egypt. You know what Paul says? Just reminds me of that. Galatians 2.20. Some of you may know that verse. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. All of us who are trusting in Jesus Christ, we're trusting in a historical reality. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, died on the cross for our sins. When he died, he died for me. I wasn't born yet. I, I didn't know right from wrong yet. I had not experienced many things yet. But Jesus died for me. And what do we say to our children? I don't, I don't live the life I live for sin anymore. I'm dead to the world. I am dead to the power of sin. I live by faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ died for me. We tell our children... Jesus Christ died for sinners. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Put your trust in Jesus Christ. Everybody who trusts in Jesus Christ can say, Jesus died for me, gave himself for me. Last thing that we're going to look at is redemption. We've looked at freedom, belonging, now redemption. Look at the last paragraph, or not the last paragraph, but verses 11 through 16 in verse, chapter 13. 
says, uh, when the Lord brings you into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are male shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb. Or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn man among your sons you shall redeem. And when in time to come your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. What saved Israel from judgment? And you could say the plagues of Egypt did or the judgments of God had freed them. But why was it that the firstborn of the Egyptians died but the firstborns of the Israelites did not? It was because they had been redeemed. The lamb took the place of the firstborn in that house. Died in their place to redeem them, to buy them back. To buy them out of slavery, to buy them out of judgment. God is telling the Israelites, I want you to remember that. Don't forget that. Tell your children about it. Every, every firstborn that comes out. Every firstborn. Now, it goes through, it goes through some of the scenarios. Like if you have a, a firstborn lamb or a firstborn goat or a firstborn uh, bull, then uh, it's really clear. That's a sacrificial animal. Uh, it talks about donkeys there. Donkeys can't be sacrificial animals. If you want to keep the donkey, you have to substitute a lamb in its place but the most important thing is that you don't you don't sacrifice your children as some of the gods in that time uh, were thought of as receiving people sacrifice their children in the play in the among the canaanites you're not going to sacrifice your children though a, a lamb is going to take the, their place the lamb is going to die in their place the lamb is going to redeem them what is it that keeps us from judgment we could say it's the return of Jesus Christ. We could say it is the, the judgment of God that he, he, he removes the, from sin from the world and evil from the world. And, but why is it that he passes over us? Why is it that God does not enter into us, uh, enter into judgment with us? It's because the lamb died in our place. Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus Christ is the Lamb who dies for our sins. 1 Peter 1, 18 and 19. You were ransomed, or you were redeemed, from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The only thing that could pay for your sins, the only one who could pay for your sins, is Jesus Christ. The only one who could pay for your sins eternally is Jesus Christ. He redeemed you. Or listen to what Paul says, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Remember what, what Pharaoh had said? Bless me also. Don't curse me. Don't let me take away the curse of God from me. What is it that takes away the curse of God, the curse of God's judgment on us? 
Jesus Christ dies in our place. He redeems us. He buys us out of that. He bought us. He ransomed us. He redeemed us. He paid the price for us. So trust in Jesus Christ. Remember. Moses keeps saying, God keeps saying through Moses, remember, remember. You're talking about, we're talking about a people who live in a, in a, in a culture where their main livelihood is, is, is herds and livestock. Every firstborn, every firstborn child, you're going to remember. It's going to be like something, a mark you keep on your forearm. Keep it, keep it like something hanging between your eyes. Don't ever forget, don't ever forget, remember and know and believe Jesus Christ died to redeem us from our sins. Don't forget that. Remember, believe, know Jesus died for our sins. Let's pray together. Uh, Father, how wise and wonderful is your plan How wondrous are your works, overcoming sinful, stubborn hearts, overcoming powerful men who are, who set themselves up against you. How marvelous and wonderful are your works in providing a ransom for our sins, a price to be paid for our sins, for sending your son to die for us. He died to take away our curse. We thank you. We praise you. We praise you as the one who is mighty and wonderful and all-wise and all-knowing. You are the powerful God who through your, your work of judgment, even the judgment that you poured out on Jesus Christ, that through that you have given us freedom. Grant that we would have faith. That we would have faith in Jesus Christ, that we would be ready to obey Jesus Christ from the heart. We would be ready to live for Jesus Christ every day, all the time, continually remembering Jesus' death for our sins. In his name we pray. Amen.